I am on staff here with Christian Challenge, and um, looking around the room, I feel like I know a fair amount of your faces. Uh, a lot of you I do not know yet, so I'm looking forward to getting to know you. If you don't know me, um, you will enjoy my, my other half better. Uh, my wife, who is not here, um, is home with our, our two kids. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Corey, and then we have a two-week-old named William. Is there, oh, there's a picture. Okay. Hey, good. I, to, I couldn't remember if I deleted that or not, so oh, there you go. There you go. That's, that, that's them. That's my best slide tonight. It's all downhill from here. Um, that was like two days ago. So, yeah, that's them. Uh, they get their looks from their mother. Um, so tonight we're continuing a series uh, entitled Written for Our Instruction. And basically it's based off of a principle from a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, uh, which is up here on the screen. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And basically the, the premise behind this series is really we, we believe that uh, the Bible is really written not just for our entertainment, but for really for our instruction, and that as we really dive into the stories in the Bible, we can really pull out principles from them and really be able to apply them to our everyday lives. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth, which is uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible. I told my wife we need to have a third kid because I have one more name I need to use. And so we need to have a daughter named Ruth. Um, and, uh, but before we do that, I want you guys to take two minutes and uh, just talk to the person sitting next to you. And I want you to discuss one of two things. Either share a unique family story uh, that is kind of unique to you, something like, oh, everybody knows a time that dad did or grandma did or something like that. Or if you don't have one on the top of your head, share like a unique family trait. Like, you know, like, man, I, something that was really passed down to me was maybe, you know, honesty or hard work or showing up on time or not showing up on time. I don't know, whatever that is for you. Um, so share that real quickly with your neighbor for about two minutes and then we're going to come back. Okay, go. All right, let's bring it back together here. Let's bring it back together. We're all in this together. All right. Good. I heard a lot of chatter, but I'm sure it was fun. Um, those are fun questions to kind of ask, good, good ways to get to know each other. Everybody loves a good story. Um, and so we're going to talk about a couple of them tonight. But first, I want to talk about, um, just give a little bit of some of my family's story and just some of the lessons I learned along the way as a result of that, things I picked up. Um, now, for those of you that don't know, my parents uh, are Neil and Melinda Walker, and if you have, are like, who's that? Uh, Neil and Melinda Walker are the people that started Christian Challenge here at USC about 30 years ago, and if you don't know who they are, just look for the two oldest people in the room, <laughs> and that is them. And so, um, that's right, where, where could it be? So, in case you were wondering, you know, why do you guys share the same last name? That is why. Um, also, if you're, if you're new here and you're just checking out, like, Christianity for the first time, and you're, you're kind of, like, figuring out if this is true or real or not, um, one thing for you to consider is a grown man who is totally independent and has moved away and outside of his family that would willingly put himself back under the leadership of his dad as his <laughs> boss um, and enjoy it, like... Obviously, there's some changing power in Christianity and the gospel. <laughs> Something to consider. Because if you had told me that I was going to be doing this job, you know, when I was a little kid, I would be like, eh, probably not true. But, um, but you know, hey. So, side note, Jesus really does change lives. Um, so, yes, side note. So, one, one story that was kind of uh, true, it's something I remember a lot growing up, was um, my parents constantly had people in our home. 
Uh, we, they, it was, they were in there all the time. We had people from out of town. We had uh, people that were living with us. We had students over all the time for meals and for, for Bible study and just for fun. And one thing I also remember is we fed a lot of people in our house, and that cost a lot of money, and, uh, which was really interesting because we were a family of six living in Southern California on one income, and not a very big one at that. And so just how we were able to pull that off, I'm not totally sure. Um, but we had students living with us constantly. We had people that sometimes would stay the night, sometimes I would stay a week, sometimes stay a month, sometimes a year. And you never knew. It was like sometimes we just had people in and out. We had cousins living with us. I mean, it, people were in and out all the time. At any given time, there were probably 10 different people that had keys to our house and were coming and going. And so there, you, you weren't safe uh, at any point. Um, I mean, people could go any time. Uh, your bed would be taken at any point. Um, it was normal to uh, have our garage not used for cars. Uh, we would normally have uh, people's stuff stored in there. Students would be like, can I store that a week or a month or maybe a year or two years? And, and so rarely do we have cars parked in our garage. That was just normal growing up. And then at Thanksgiving time, we always would have you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 people over our house. And we just have this big spread of food. And uh, I just thought that was normal. I mean, I remember the first time that I spent Thanksgiving with my wife's family when we were just dating in college in Oklahoma. And there were maybe like 10 of us there, which is like a decent amount. I was like, man, it's really small. Like, where is everybody, you know? One turkey, what? And, uh, and then I began to think about it. I was like, wait a minute. Actually, I think that might be normal for the rest of the country. I think I may be the odd one, you know? 50 or 60 people at Thanksgiving is not very normal. Um, but that was, just, that was just normal. That was, that was what I was used to. Uh, I, was, I was used to just seeing practice as a custom, just really radical inclusiveness and radical generosity in my family. Um, and I guess... You know, looking, looking back now, those have kind of developed into convictions, but when I was younger, they, they were just uh, normal. It wasn't really anything I thought about, but it was fun. Um, well, tonight I want to really talk about um, another person's family heritage and things they learned, and we're going to talk about, um, real briefly, briefly, the man of Solomon. And so Solomon, now some of you guys may know Solomon was uh, the son of the great King David of Israel, um, but one of the things you may not know that's a little less common known about him is he was actually the great-great-grandson of a woman named Ruth. And Ruth, incidentally, was only one of two women who had a book of the Bible named after her, so she's kind of a big deal. Um, and one of the things that was true about Solomon also was he was incredibly wise. God gave him wisdom, um, and the Bible says that he gave him so much wisdom that there was no man or woman before him or that lived after him that would was even close to being as wise as Solomon was. And among one of Solomon's many accomplishments was he wrote a big part of the book of Proverbs, in which a book of, the book of Proverbs is kind of smack dab in the middle of the Bible, and it's a book that is just packed full of, of practical wisdom for everyday living. And so tonight I want to look at one proverb that Solomon uh, wrote in particular as sort of the backdrop for how, how we look at the rest of the book of Ruth tonight. Um, now the Bible doesn't say this for sure, but I'm pretty convinced that as Solomon would, would sit down to write these Proverbs, he probably wasn't just writing them in a vacuum. He probably wasn't just like, hmm, what do I think about today? Like, he was probably reflecting a lot, sitting down and reflecting on, okay, how has God worked in my life, and how does God seem to be orchestrating things? How has God worked in the lives of the people in my family, you know? And just thinking about story after story that his dad had told him, and his, and his grandparents had told him, and his great-grandparents had told him. And I'm convinced that as he began to write this one particular proverb we're going to look at tonight, he had to have been thinking about the story of his great-great-grandmother, Ruth, because her life is a living picture of this proverb. In fact, everybody in the story that we're going to look at tonight is, was really living out the truth of this proverb. So tonight, uh, the title for Tanakh's Tide is Ruth, um, The Secret to a Refreshed Life. And I figured that would be an appropriate 
um, topic about this point in the semester. As, uh, as midterms are ramping up and you're a little over a month in, I doubt there's many of us, well, one, I, I, I think two things are true. One, I think everyone in this room values refreshment. I think everybody enjoys that. I also think that nobody in this room is thinking, I'm a little overly refreshed at this point in the semester. I think I'm a little too refreshed, you know? I mean, I think everybody is trying to figure out, how do I get more of that in my life? And so I thought, you know, tonight's topic will hopefully be helpful for kind of where you're at. Um, another reason I think tonight's topic will be helpful is the secret to a refreshed life is not intuitive. In fact, it took God having to prod the, the wisest man that ever lived to finally put this on paper so that people would know what it meant to have a refreshing life. And so... Tonight, we're going to reveal a secret. We're going to talk about what is the key and what's the secret to a fresh life. And then we're going to have some fun unpacking some examples of uh, the story of Ruth and how that really played out in her life and the life of the people in that book. So the secret to a fresh life is this. Proverbs 11.25, we have up there on the, the screen. Proverbs 11.25 says, He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Now, like I said, that, that is not very intuitive. Um, I don't know about you, but it's, it's easy for me to think, no, actually, if, if I want to get refreshed, I've got to kind of take care of me, you know, focus on myself. I've got to treat myself and make sure that I'm getting, you know, what I want, because that's how I'm getting a refreshment. But Solomon says, no, actually, it's the opposite. As you choose to focus on being a refreshment to others, you yourself will be refreshed. Now, I mean, you can get some temporary refreshment just trying to focus on yourself, you know, getting a cold drink, you know, and a, a night at the movies. I mean, yeah, those little bits of refreshment, but if you want real refreshment, refreshment that lasts, he says, you actually have to seek to be refreshment to others, and then you yourselves will be refreshed. So before we jump into what that looks like in the life of Ruth, I want to give you just a little bit of uh, backstory of just kind of what was going on in the time of Ruth uh, during that time period. So Ruth takes place uh, around 1100 BC during the time of the judges in the Old Testament. Now, to say that the time of the judges in the Old Testament was a, uh, a low point in the, the history of Israel would kind of be an understatement. I mean, this, this time was, uh, was pretty awful. It was a time of incredible religious and, and moral just bankruptcy and degeneracy. And, and the, the, the national disunity was kind of at an all-time high. And uh, so much like, you know, the United States today. I mean, in a lot of ways, right? Uh, we, have, we have a lot of the same things. So even though this was written, you know, thousands of years ago, this was... Uh, a very similar culture, you know, just both in the, uh, the moral atmosphere and both in the, uh, the national, you know, unity a, a, as we see here today in America. Um, however, in the midst, one of the things that's true about the story is in the midst of these really dark times uh, in the story and lives of Israel, um, you see God continuing to create just this beautiful picture and to work mightily in the lives of these uh, few people that are really choosing to faithfully walk with God, just like he still does with people today. And so Ruth is, is a great example of that. And as we go through this book, one of the things I want you to notice is that there's no really overt miracles in this, in this uh, book of the Bible. There's no, you know, uh, parting of the Red Seas or water being turned into wine or miraculous healings. You don't see any of that in this book. But as you begin to go through the book, as we'll look at it tonight, you, you see the fingerprint of God all over the pages of this book because God is working miraculously behind the scenes to see that those who refresh others are themselves refreshed. And one of the things we're going to see a little bit later in the story is just how uh, God's big story, what he's writing in, in history, just the, the redemption story of how he wants to restore you and me into a relationship with him, is being uh, moved forward step by step in the lives of 
of the choices that people in this story are making as they are choosing to not focus on themselves, but to really refresh those around him. God's grand story of redemption is being moved forward step by step. So with that as a backdrop, let's dive in here. We got Ruth chapter one, verse one through four. We're going to go through the whole book, but we're going to do it pretty quickly. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. So just as a little bit of a picture, there's a, there's a map here just kind of showing where, where this is in the Middle East. So you have Moab there in the bottom part, and then you have the big Dead Sea kind of separating. And on the other side is Judah. And in the top right corner of Judah is a little town called Bethlehem. And so it was a fairly uh, lengthy journey to get to Moab, but that's kind of a little bit of a, a reference as to where they were. Now, the story goes on to mention the name of uh, the two sons of Naomi, but they're not around in the story long enough for me to have to embarrass myself trying to pronounce their name, so I'm not going to, but just know that she had two sons, and they did have names. Um, So as time passes, Naomi's sons grow up, and and they're ready to get married. They're ready to have a family. And so they're not in Israel. They're in Moab, so what do they do? They marry Moabite women. And uh, one of the sons marries a woman named Orpah, and the other marries a woman named Ruth. Now, the story goes on to say that over the course of about 10 years, um, this family experiences an incredible tragedy. Uh, First, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And then soon thereafter, both of her sons die. And not only do they die, but they die before they actually are able to have any children. So over the course of about 10 years, Naomi is left husbandless and childless and grandchildless in this foreign country. And she's in in a tough spot. And not only just kind of to paint a picture of you know, how, how bleak this was. I mean, that would be tough in today's circumstances to have all that happen to you, right? Um, but at the same time, in that day and age, it was even worse because a woman's physical um, safety and just financial security was incredibly tied to the men that she was uh, related to, whether it be her husband or her brothers or her father. So uh, to be a single lady in this time period was, was incredibly dangerous physically and was incredibly um, hard to get work financially. And not only that, but Naomi was old. I mean, she, she, you know, her better years were behind her. She wasn't quite the looker she was before. So, I mean, the idea of remarrying was really not in the cards for her. So, really, all she had left at this point was her two widowed daughters-in-law. And yet, uh, what she does next starts the ripple effect of the different acts of refreshment that we're going to see throughout the story. So, Naomi realizes, hey, you know what? Uh, life's pretty bleak. Um, it's looking pretty desolate. I think I'll go spend the remainder of my desolate years back in my home country in Judah rather than in this foreign country of Moab. So she sets out on a journey with her two daughters-in-law to head back. And at some point along the way in the journey, um, it doesn't, it's not clear whether it happened like right away or, or several days into the journey, she gets this thought, hey, you know what? I'm kind of focusing on myself here. I'm not really thinking about what's the best interest of my daughters-in-law. So finally... Uh, she, she says this to her daughters-in-law, and, th- and this is an incredibly considerate and kind thing to say, knowing that it would cost her greatly um, to say this. But she says it to really refresh her daughters-in-law. She says, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. As you have shown kindness to your dead <coughs> husbands and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So basically, she releases her daughters-in-law, from being bound to her anymore. And at that time, there was an Israelite law that basically said, uh, you cannot marry outside of the family you've married into. So they were sort of bound to her. But she says, you know what, actually, you're released from that. And in so releasing these women, 
she not only is releasing them, but she's really releasing the only chance of a future livelihood that she had left. That those were the only two people she had left, and she was saying, "Go, you know, start your lives over." And so, you know, as goodbyes go, these women are crying and they're hugging and they're just, "Oh, it's going to be terrible." And then, and, and it is, you know, they're not going to see each other anymore. But and so, Orpa, she she says, "Thanks for the release." And she heads home. But Ruth, not Ruth, that's not what she does. Instead, Ruth replies with an act of refreshment back to Naomi. Um, That's really one of kind of the greatest pictures of loyalty and love you see in all of ancient uh, literature. And she says this to Naomi in, in verse 16 and 18. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Isn't, isn't that a beautiful statement? I mean, wow, like that's incredible. I mean, I remember the first time my wife said that to me when she said, you know, don't make me go. No, she, she actually never said that. Uh, um, I let her stay around. Uh, but, I mean, that, that is an incredible picture of, of just love and loyalty that, that she shows here. Um, Ruth basically threw in her lot with Naomi, knowing that she was basically uh, going to be promised a future that was incredibly uncertain, incredibly dangerous, and uh, with not a lot of prospects. So the story goes on. They, they get to Bethlehem, and the town... Bethlehem it isn't very big, so word spreads fast that Naomi's back, and, and people begin to hear about all that tragedy because they're like, hey, you left years ago with the husband and two sons, and you're back with none of them, and you have this random Moabite woman with you. What's going on? Um, so word spreads pretty quickly about what's happened to her, but word also spreads pretty quickly about what Ruth has done and the incredible, loving, refreshing act she's been uh, displayed to her, her mother-in-law, Naomi. So once they get back, Naomi and Ruth uh, kind of get settled, and they figure out pretty quickly, we got to do something for food. You know, we've, we've got to be able to eat something. And so um, this is when Ruth steps up again with another act of refreshment. And in Ruth 2.2, she says, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind uh, anyone who, whose eyes I find favor. Now, just in the backdrop of what Ruth is doing, she's not stealing in this instance. What she's doing is, uh, in, in the days of Israel, there was this law called the law of gleaning. And basically what that meant is... Um, each year when the annual harvest came around, and this was the annual harvest of barley at the time when they got back to Bethlehem, uh, there was a law that basically said, if you own a field, you're allowed to do one initial pass on collecting the grain. And then you leave anything else, any other grain that's left over after the initial pass, you leave it. And you leave it intentionally so that the, the widows and the orphans and the, um, and the poor people and the foreigners could come in and they could glean the leftover food and they'd have something to eat. Um, However, because Israel was kind of in this morally bankrupt uh, place that we talked about earlier, um, it was a really dangerous task to glean in these open fields, especially for a woman, even more so for a foreign woman. And so what, what, happened, const- uh, what happened commonly in that time period is women would, would be attacked while they were gleaning. Oftentimes they were raped in the fields when they were gleaning. And so, um, Naomi, so Ruth, by being willing to go and glean for, for her and her mother-in-law. This was no, no small gesture. She was really intentionally putting herself in harm's way to really be a refreshment to her mother-in-law. Well, it turns out, of all the fields that Ruth could choose to go glean in, she ends up gleaning in the field of this man named Boaz. 
who was a distant relative of Elimelech, the late husband of Naomi. And one day Boaz notices Ruth gleaning in the fields, and he says to the overseer of his, har- of his harvest tree, he says, hey, who, who, who is, who's the new girl? You know, and, and he goes, oh, that, that's, that's the Moabite. That's, that's uh, Ruth that came back with Naomi. And, and, and of course, you know, word had probably already spread about all the things that Ruth had done for Naomi. And so, so Boaz, who, who was an older guy, and who, but was also very kind and a very godly man, and who had no doubt heard about all the things that Ruth had done for his relative Naomi, he says to Ruth, he says, my daughter, oh, and so he chooses to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be a refreshment to Ruth because of the things that she's done for my relative. And so he says here in, uh, in Ruth 2, he says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the fields where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. And then later he goes on to say, hey, you know what? You look like you're hungry. Come and eat food at my table. You know, eat as much as you want. And so for the first time in probably a very long time, Ruth actually has a full stomach. She actually gets to eat a full meal. Um, and then he goes, he goes even the extra mile. He, says, he tells his workers, hey, you know what? Uh, take some of the extra grain that you guys have harvested and kind of like nonchalantly drop it in the field so that she's got extra grain to glean. You know, when she, and she has more to take home for herself and for her mother-in-law. And, uh, and, 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 and when you read that, you think, man, what a stud. Like, this guy's awesome, like, right? Like, he's like, uh, like wouldn't, you, wouldn't you want to be a guy like that? Wouldn't you want a guy like that? But so Boaz intentionally, he, he's intentionally seeking the provision and the protection of uh, this woman who he, he just met. He doesn't even really know much about her. Um, and he did it really at the cost of not only his own food, but probably at the bickering of some of his gentlemen who are like, oh, we have to leave our hands to ourselves. Yes, you have to leave your hands to yourself. You can't, you know, and, but, but he chooses to really sacrifice some of his own stuff so he can really be a refreshment to Ruth and Naomi. And then the story goes on. So Ruth comes back home and she's got all this extra food and uh, tells Naomi all that's happened and that she's, she's met this man named Boaz and, and she's, you know, getting tons of food to glean. And Naomi, for the first time and maybe since her husband and, and children have died, she, she's excited. She's like, wow, this is amazing. And she, so she starts praising God for just all the things that he's doing. Um, and then she mentions to, to Ruth, which I always think is kind of funny, like, you're just now mentioning this? But um, she tells Ruth, you know, oh, Boaz, he's actually a relative of ours. You know, um, and not only is he a relative, but he's, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. And uh, now that, that phrase, so it's up there in case you're wondering, what did he just say? Kinsman redeemer. Um, it's kind of a, an odd term. You don't hear people like going around, introduce themselves today as, oh, I'm a kinsman redeemer. Um, so let me just give a little backdrop of what that is. Basically, the best way to picture that today is like, like your really rich uncle. You know, um, you know, everybody's got that. Like, maybe it's not uncle. Maybe it's just like a distant relative. But it's, a, it's that really like rich family member you have that, like, when when your family is in a barn, they have trouble. They they call. You know, it's it's the Godfather. You know, it's it's that guy. And and uh, he, and so they uh, they go and that's who you you go to. And that's kind of what a kinsman redeemer was back in the day, is they were sort of responsible for protecting the interests of the needy family members um, in their family. And so they typically did that in in one of four ways. One, they would either uh, be a redeemer by redeeming the land that a poor relative had had, had to sell uh, because of you know some financial misfortunes, or they did it by redeeming the actual relatives. Sometimes the relatives got themselves in such a bind they actually had to sell themselves into slavery, and they'd be like, "Hey, can you you know bail me out?" And so the kinsman redeemer would come in, um, or the third would be when a kinsman redeemer had to avenge. Um, 
the death of one of their relatives, which is one of the, one of the ways it's translated kinsman redeemer. They're also, you know, translated an avenger, which, you know, it's like, hey, the first avengers, you know, back in the book of Ruth. Um, but, or the fourth way that a kinsman redeemer would help a family member out is they would, uh, they would marry the widow of um, one of their brothers and so that the family line could, and the name of their dead brother could, could have an heir and it would continue to go on. And so it's in that fourth idea that Naomi has an idea for Ruth. Um, she's thinking, hey, he's a kinsman redeemer. And so, so Naomi, realizing that she's herself getting older and realizing that uh, you know, she's eventually going to die and she doesn't want to leave this, this widowed foreign woman in Israel by herself, she, she starts to think, okay, how can I be a refreshment to Ruth? And so she chooses to play a little matchmaker. And so basically the, the long and the short of it is, is what she does is she, um, I'll spare you all the details, but essentially she creates a plan for Ruth to get some one-on-one time with Boaz so that she can ask Boaz kind of in private, hey, would you consider um, taking me as, as your wife? And, uh, and this is Boaz's response. He says, he says this to Ruth. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Translation, wow, you're willing to marry an old guy like me? You know, like, that's amazing. Um, and you're not going to go after the younger guys? And, uh, and then he says, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a kinsman redeemer of our family, there is another who is even more closely related than I. So stay here tonight. Well, okay, stop there. Stay here tonight was not a suggestion like stay here tonight. You know, it was more like, you know, as we think today, it was more like, hey, I've got a spare bed for you to sleep on. You know, stay here tonight. Um, And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So Boaz, being the honorable man that he is, uh, first checks with the closer kinsman redeemer, says, hey, are you, are you willing to marry uh, Ruth and, and kind of uh, take care of her? And the, the closer kinsman redeemer actually says, no, I, I, I don't want to, because I'm afraid if, 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 I have, if I get married to her and have a kid with her, and that's my only heir, then when I die, all the land that I own is going to go to the family of Elimelech and not my family. And so, yeah, that's, that's too risky. I don't want to do that. And so Boaz, knowing that he'd be taking on the same risk, instead chooses to marry Ruth, unlike the kinsman redeemer uh, who is closer. And he chooses to marry her and to really protect her and provide for her. And in so doing, ends up really being a refreshment to Ruth. Now, I mentioned earlier that the big story that God was writing of redemption was continuing to move forward step by step uh, through the, the selfless and refreshing acts of these people as they were choosing not to focus on themselves but be refreshment to others. And this is what I meant by that right here. The last part of the story. So, you see, after Ruth and Boaz got married, they, they had a son, and his name was Obed. And Obed had a son who was named Jesse. And Jesse was the father of the great King David. And if you read in the first chapter of the book of Matthew in the New Testament, and you begin to look at the genealogy of the great King David, you see down the road is uh, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah the Savior of the world who, who died for your sins and died for my sins over 2,000 years ago so that we could have a restored relationship with God if we so choose. And 1,000 years before he did that, there were three people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, who were choosing to refresh others rather than themselves. 
And in so doing, actually brought refreshment to the whole world because out of that line came Jesus. So the Proverbs 20, uh, 11, 25, you know, he refreshes others will himself be refreshed. That, that is not only true um, during the time of Ruth and Boaz, it was true during the time of Solomon when he wrote it, and it's also true even in today's world um, because the same God still exists. The same God is still sovereign. The same God is still orchestrating things such that as people refresh other people, God sees it fit that either directly or indirectly, he's going to make sure those people are refreshed as well. And I say that's true today uh, because I've seen this firsthand in my own life. I've seen this in the life of, of my wife and I and, and our life. I've also seen it in the life of my family growing up. Um, I, you know, I mentioned to you earlier part of uh, my family's story of how just the, the radical inclusiveness and how my, my parents had, had just used our home uh, year after year to really serve people and refresh them and have them over and, and pour into them. Well, and I also knew that they did this on not very much income because uh, for all the years we lived there, we were just renting the house. We couldn't afford to actually buy the house. Um, well, in 2001, after my parents had been living there for about 10 years, uh, the landlord calls and says, hey, um, good news and bad news. Uh, I, I want to sell the house. Uh, that's good news if you can afford it. <laughs> bad news if you can't. Um, and I need an answer in about two weeks. Um, well, she was wanting to sell the house for about... $295,000, which um, is, a, I mean, it's a lot of money. It was even more money back in 2001. Um, and my parents, in, in order to really even afford a mortgage payment on that house, uh, they were going to have to put down about $90,000. And the only problem was they were about 90000 short of the $90,000 down payment that would be needed for this house. And so... So my dad just starts looking for other places because he's thinking, well, there's no way we're going to be able to afford this place. Um, and while this is going on, my mom is overseas uh, seeking to try to refresh some of the missionaries that we had sent out over there and were working in some other parts of uh, Southeast Asia. So uh, when, when, our, when our pastor, uh, Randy Lanthrop, got, got wind of what was going on, he asked my dad, hey, what do you think about me writing a letter uh, to some of the alumni and the people that you've built into over the years and just see if, if they wouldn't mind uh, or if they would want to contribute um, to, to help you buy this house. I mean, they, they've really uh, experienced the benefits of this home, too. And my dad was like, well, I, I, I don't know. Our alumni, they don't have a ton of money. I don't think that would be a good idea. Um, but through several conversations, eventually, you know, Randy, Randy won that conversation. and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, send a letter. And somebody says, okay, that's, that, that's fine. Well, long and the short of it, over about two weeks, over $90,000 came in. And, and when it was all said and done, about 110000 almost came in. And they were able to actually buy the house. And, uh, and if, for those of you that have been over to my parents' house today, that is the house that they purchased. You know, It looks a lot different. We've actually done a lot of work on it over the years. Uh, uh, literally, we have done the work on it. We, didn't, we couldn't afford to actually get other people to come and do it, but we've done it. Um, but the great thing about that story is not, I mean, the house is great. Many of you have been there. Many of you have slept there. You've been to parties over there. Um, the house is good, but, you know, there's lots of houses. But the thing that was really, why, why that is such an important story in our family history is we got to really see um, God really come through. We got to see God work through his people to really uh, refresh my parents who have really spent their lives refreshing other people. And so we could look at a, that proverb and say, that's not just true, it's real. We've seen it happen. So if this is true, if the secret to a refreshed life is really to be a refreshment to others, well then... How do we practically live that out? Because it's not in the information 
but it's really in the application of the things we learn from the Bible that you're really going to find the blessing. So what, it, what does that look like in practical life? Um, let me give you four quick suggestions, and then, and then we'll be done. Um, one, when you come to group settings, like, like Thursday Night Challenge or, or Life Groups or Freshman Connection that you heard about, um, make a habit of asking yourself the question, who here can I refresh, rather than the question, who here is going to refresh me, you know? which is, is, is often the more common question that we tend to ask. Because the chances are there are people around here that are probably just as tired and need just as much refreshment as you, maybe more. And so making the, the conscious choice, say, you know what, I'm going to choose to refresh other people and trust God that he's going to figure out a way to refresh me. And, and realizing that refreshing other people uh, you know, in, entails more than just words, um, as you saw in the life of Ruth and the life of my parents, it, it usually involves sacrifice of our time and our money and our effort and our energy. Um, but making the choice to do it because it's worth it. As you choose to do that, you will be refreshed as well. And then the second suggestion is when, when you make a weekly or daily schedule, assuming you do, um, by the way, that's a whole another subject. You ought, to, you ought to make a schedule. It's a good idea. Um, but assuming you do, uh, make sure you have time built into your schedule for people and not just tasks. Um, it is possible to, to have a, a day where you have a lot of things on your to-do list and do every single one of them and totally miss the will of God for your life that day. Um, because, see, God, God said the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love people. And oftentimes, a lot of things on our to-do list have nothing to do with that. And so I, I would encourage you, make time for people in your day and make time that, that is not just purely just to see them, but to actually look for intentional ways to refresh them. And then third, um, be faithful with your commitments and what you've been asked to do. Um, when, when, you're, when you're in a group project or when you're, when you're uh, doing something for school, when, when you have people in your group that, like, they get their work done on time, maybe even early, and they do it, like, with excellence, is that not an incredibly refreshing group partner to have? I mean, right? I mean, You've never seen that before, right? But, but if you, imagine if, if that did happen. Um, or imagine having a roommate who, uh, without having to be asked, clean their side of the room and, and even clean some of your side of the room. Like, wouldn't that be incredibly refreshing? You know, well, if that would be refreshing to you, chances are that would be refreshing to them as well. So make it a habit of being faithful with your commitments and what you've been asked to do. And in doing so, you will be a refreshment to others. And then last but not least, um, choose to host others in your home. Um, you upperclassmen, I, I would, I would uh, wager that most of the underclassmen, especially the freshmen, are probably uh, fairly sick of cafeteria food by now and wouldn't mind a home-cooked meal in your apartments, in your homes. And so, um, and, you know, they're probably ready to get out of their jail cells, their, their little 10 foot, foot by 10 foot dorms um, that they pay an arm and a leg for uh, every semester. And they would like to maybe be somewhere just a little bit bigger where they kind of like stretch out their legs, you know. Um, so host people in your homes. Uh, freshmen, now you may not be able to make meals for, uh, for your, your friends and, and you have, you know, your meal plans. But there's lots of ways you can use your dorm to actually... Um, be a refreshment to others. When I, when I was in college, three things I, I did uh, with my roommates that really kind of kept our place more of a refreshing place to be is, one, we made a habit to regularly clean our room and uh, to make our beds so that people felt like they could come in and, and relax and sit down without, like, catching a disease of any core. You know, they weren't just like, oh, gosh, is, is this even sanitary? Yeah, it is, you know. Um, 
second thing we did is we tried to keep our room actually smelling good, not like a locker room. You know, Glade plugins, they were wonders. I would encourage, Hawaiian breeze, you know, very, very gender neutral, you know, you can have it in there and people are wondering, hey, um, but it's, it's a good smell. Um, and then third, one of the things we did, uh, nothing fancy, is we, we kept a mini fridge in our, um, in our dorm room and we just kept it stocked with like Gatorades and sodas and stuff so that when guys came over, you know, we could give them a cold drink and as we were playing video games or, or watching TV or just goofing around and doing homework talking and stuff. So, I mean, very simple but very practical ways you can actually be a refreshment to others with your home, even your dorm room. So, gang, if, if, we, all, if we all decided that this was true, that really that he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, and we actually live that out, I can guarantee you two things would be true for each one of us. One, you would start to feel more refreshed because you're choosing to go with instead of against the reality that God has created for how life works. You'd be more refreshed. And second, if you're a Christian, you'll start to notice that your family and friends that, that don't know Jesus or are kind of skeptical of that, they're going to begin to notice over time that this God that you serve isn't just true. He's actually real for you. And he's really changing you from the inside out. And as he's doing that, you're being a refreshment to those around them, including probably them. And, as, and you'll find that as you seek to do that, boy, you're going to really uh, be an attractive witness as to what a Christian really looks like, as opposed to someone who really is a real turnoff to like, don't want to be like that at all, you know? So I, I would encourage you, um, th- this, this short phrase, he refreshes us will himself be refreshed, it is not just true, it's real, and as you choose to live it out, you're going to see some major difference in your life and the life of those around you. Um, well, let me pray, and I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and we'll sing some more songs. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for preserving stories like this of the book of Ruth. Thank you for um, amazing uh, people that you worked in, like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, um, and that as they have really chosen to just give practical examples of what it looks like to refresh those around them, um, and just how you are faithful to uh, not just call us to be a refreshment to people, but you've seen it fit to make sure that we refreshed one way or another, whether it's through you or through just indirectly through your people. And so thank you for that. Thank you for just Solomon uh, choosing to reflect upon that and actually write it down so that we would have the secret to what a refreshed life really looks like. And I really do pray um, for each one of the people here that they would really uh, find refreshment in you and really find uh, refreshment and be a refreshment to others. And that as they do that, God, um, life would not just be tolerable. It would be enjoyable. And they would, uh, they would enjoy the relationships they have and they would enjoy the rest of the semester um, and maybe even come back for a second. And so um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.